Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Do a great job. You can find out more and give them a call. Johnson'sAirConditioning.com is the website. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is LifeInNaples.net. We've got great guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Brad Palumbo is a uh, uh, domestic correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. And we'll visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston, as author of several books, his latest, truly a great book, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It is September the 24th, and on this day in 1789, the Judiciary Act of 1789 was passed by Congress and signed by President George Washington, establishing the Supreme Court of the United States as a tribunal made up of six justices who were to serve on the court until death or retirement. That day, President Washington nominated John Jay to preside as Chief Justice, John Rutledge, William Cushing, John Blair, Robert Harrison, and James Wilson to be Associate Justices. On the 26th, all six appointments were confirmed by the United States Senate. The United States Court was established by Article Three of the United States Constitution, the Constitution granted the Supreme Court ultimate jurisdiction over all laws, especially those in which their constitutionality was at issue. The High Court was also designated to oversee cases concerning treaties of the United States, foreign diplomats, admiralty practice, and maritime jurisdiction. On May the 1st, or I should say uh, February the 1st, 1790, the first session of the U.S. Supreme Court was held in New York City's Royal Exchange Building. The U.S. Supreme Court grew into the most important judicial body in the world in terms of central place in the American political order. According to the Constitution, the size of the court is set by Congress, and the number of justices varied during the 19th century before stabilizing in 1869 as nine justices. This number, however, can be changed at any time by Congress. It's threatened, of course, by the Democrats. In times of constitutional crisis, the nation's highest court has always played a definitive role in resolving for better or worse, the great issues of our time. <clears throat> First, uh, again, established on this date in 1789. Well, the state of Florida has obtained thousands of monoclonal antibody treatments to treat COVID-19 from a UK-based company after the Biden administration's abrupt rationing of federally acquired doses. Florida went uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which produces monoclonals that haven't yet been bought up by the federal government. They reached an agreement on about 3,000 doses, I should say. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis announced on the 23rd, this shows that we're going to leave no stone unturned, and if there's somebody that needs a monoclonal antibody treatment, we're going to work hard to get them, he said in Tampa. Uh, The Biden administration seized controls of monoclonals this month in response to what some officials have described as a national shortage. The federal government has bought millions of doses from Eli Lilly and Regeneron. The only other monoclonal authorized for the use of the United States is produced by GlaxoSmithKline or GSK. GSK, which didn't immediately respond to requests for comment, 
uh, previously told the Epic Times that its treatments cost $2,100 per dose, roughly the same as its competitors were charging the government. Drug regulators in May authorized GSK's treatment uh, for mild to moderate COVID-19 cases, uh, patients for 12 and older and weighing at least 88 pounds. Regulators and state officials said the drug and similar others help keep people out of the hospital. Uh, DeSantis estimated thousands of Floridians have been able to avoid going to the hospital after getting COVID-19 or being exposed to a positive case because of the treatments. But like other states across the country, Florida is struggling with a looming shortage because of the Biden administration's sudden rationing. Florida's announced last week that it was in touch with GSK. Health officials in other states told the Epic Times they're not exploring buying their own treatments, with some suggesting the cost was a factor. Earlier this month, sites in Florida were getting more than 30,000 doses. That doesn't include hospitals. All its sites could be could order directly however much they needed, and the federal government provides the doses for free. This week, Florida was scheduled to receive less than 18,000, said officials. I would hate to see somebody who really could benefit from the treatment not being able to access it when we know that the track record here has been very, very positive, said DeSantis. He hosted Floridians who uh, credit monoclonal treatments with their recovery. For example, Betsy Palmer Bigler, a former teacher in Pasco County, got Regeneron's monoclonal antibody treatment, as did her husband and her father after her husband tested positive. I certainly feel that it saved probably one or all three of our lives, she said. So congratulations to the governor for uh, getting additional treatments, and hopefully bad publicity will uh, rain on uh, Joe Biden and his administration for uh, hoarding something that could be very, very helpful and save lives here in Florida. Well, another negative consequence of the coronavirus pandemic was a sharp increase in childhood obesity, according to a recent report from the Centers for Disease Control of the CDC. Examining 432,302 adolescents aged 2 to 19, the CDC determined that children had doubled their body mass index since the start of the pandemic, which uh, they were subjected to lockdowns and social isolation. The COVID-19 pandemic led to school closures, disrupted routines, increased stress, and less opportunity for physical activity and uh, proper nutrition, leading the weight gain among children and adolescents at the CDC. Uh, Children already suffering from obesity prior to the pandemic reportedly experienced the largest increases in weight gain between the months of March and November. Get this, for example, the CDC discovered that persons with moderate or severe obesity gained on average 1 to 1.2 pounds per month, resulting in a 6.1 to 7.3 pound increase over a period of six months. Can you believe that? Children with healthier BMIs saw a 2.7-pound increase over the same period of time. In its analysis, the CDC also admitted that school closures might have reduced the possibility of children engaging in physical activity and eating healthier meals. According to the American Medical Association, roughly 78% of U.S. patients hospitalized with COVID-19 were overweight or had obesity. So there's a correlation there. 78% of patients who were hospitalized were obese, and yet this whole process is making uh, kids obese, making them more susceptible to COVID-19, right? So the unintended consequences of all these lockdowns and masking up, uh, not positive for kids. Democrats and Republicans are in a standoff 
over raising the debt ceiling and passing a $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, widening the path toward a government shutdown and an unprecedented default on national debt. The House passed a bill on Tuesday that would fund the government until December and suspend the debt limit until 2022, but GOP senators have been adamant that they will not support any bill that increases the debt. Republican Senate leadership said it will block the 10 votes needed to bypass the filibuster on the bill. If it doesn't pass, the government will shut down on October the 1st. Uh, The only backup, uh, I think it's the 15th actually, the only backup plan for the Democrats is to include the raised debt ceiling with the $3.5 trillion infrastructure deal championed by President Joe Biden. But Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi signaled to colleagues in a letter on Monday that she will not move to vote on the bill in the House if her party cannot secure the votes of centrist Democrats in the Senate. Senators uh, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia have both publicly said they won't vote for the $3.5 trillion in spending but haven't named a price they would support. In fact, Joe Biden said, hey, so, so how much would you support? It's got nothing to do with policy. It's got nothing to do with plans or what's good for the nation. It just wants to spend that money. House liberals, meantime, are pressuring for a vote regardless of Senate viability. A similar situation regarding a 2009 climate change bill that passed the House but never came to the Senate floor skewered centrist Democrats in their home districts, resulting in a lost bill and a lost majority in the following midterm elections. With the deal on the debt ceiling, with, uh, which governs the money the Treasury Department can pay out, the uh, department first relies on extraordinary measures for payments, including Social Security. Then these measures are expected to run dry in mid-October, after which the government would default on such payments and launder and launch <clears throat> into uncharted fiscal waters. So in my opinion, this is the last card that the uh, Republicans hold in terms of fiscal responsibility. They should basically say, hey, if you want to raise the de- debt ceiling, show us your plan. Show us how this isn't going to increase the debt enormously in the next 10 years. Show us your plan, and we'll consider it. They hold all the cards right now. Don't back down. Republicans, hold your ground. Just say no. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas issued a warning to those crossing to the United States illegally on Monday, telling migrants their journey will not succeed. If you come to the United States illegally, you will be returned. Your journey will not succeed, and you will be endangering your life and your family's lives. This administration is committed to developing safe, orderly, and humane paths for migration. This is not the way to do it, he said, visiting Del Rio, Texas. What a liar. And then he just <laughs> he let people back into uh, the United States, the three, three or 400 uh, Haitians, uh, back to Haiti. But the, a lot of them, thousands, just came into the United States. Where did they go? Who knows? They were put on buses and, and some on planes going across the United States to different states and probably just getting lost in the crowd. He's such a liar. Too bad. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned 
for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by and get tickets by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O dot org. So, William, it looks like we're getting to the final minutes and hours here of this uh, infrastructure bill. Things seem somewhat in disarray. Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, indeed, uh, I've got a couple headlines in front of me that I think speak volumes about the, the plight of the party that is currently in power inside the Beltway. Um, so according to Slate, Democrats are at war over Biden's agenda. Um, and here, according to The Hill, panic begins to creep into Democratic talks on Biden agenda. And, and what these, uh, uh, and I welcome these alarmist tones, what they're referring to is this infighting in, within the Democratic Party between moderates and progressives over infrastructure spending. And hmm. this is well-trod territory on our prior Friday talks, but 
in a nutshell, the moderates don't want to spend more than $1.2 trillion on physical infrastructure, and progressives are loath to spend anything less than $3.5 trillion on, quote, human infrastructure. Um, so uh, clearly those two numbers are mutually exclusive. And again, matters are coming to a head. Um, this week, the president convened a meeting, or a series of meetings on, on Wednesday, trying to bring together, uh, bridge the gap between moderates and progressives to no avail. Um, reportedly, he was just unable to budge either side. And this Monday, uh, things will come to a head. The House has scheduled a vote on Monday for the $1.2 trillion measure, and progressives, the, the House Progressive Caucus, has threatened to torpedo the vote because they say not enough progress has been done on the $3.5 trillion measure. So were progressives to follow through on that threat, and there's good reason to think they will, hmm. then all of this would fall apart, which, again, would just be music to my ears because I'm here in Ron Johnson's camp, which is we've got $700 billion worth of infrastructure that was coming down the spike, uh, coming down the pike, independent of all of this. Um, at the same time, we just spent $5.5 trillion on related pandemic stuff. Uh, do we really need to spend another four-odd trillion dollars um, so if it all falls apart, then I think that would be great. Yeah, well, the old saying in business is uh, we don't have any money, so now we have to think. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so the, the fact of the matter is we don't have the money for all this. And uh, we, I, my hope my hope is that it does fall apart. But if it doesn't, and uh, never underestimate the, uh, the power and influence of Nancy Pelosi because she's been at it a while, who knows what could happen on Monday. Well, indeed, who knows what could happen on Monday. Uh, I'll say this. It appears as though if this does proceed, that the three, that in essence, progressives will have to come down from the $3.5 trillion uh, number that they've put out. I I'll say this. What gives me a cautious confidence that indeed this all will fall apart is that Manchin so far has uh, conspicuously refused to give a number. Um, uh, that is to say, the president pressed Manchin. He said, okay, give me a top-line number that you're willing to work with in terms of this, quote-unquote, human infrastructure. And all week, Manchin refused to do so. Wow. Um, and indeed, evidently on Tuesday, he skipped out during the caucus lunch or on, the, uh, on the strategy session regarding that $3.5 trillion measure. So I've got some of it. Those uh, signs, to me, indicate that perhaps Manchin meant it when he wrote that Wall Street Journal op-ed that we spoke about a month ago, when he said, hey, let's take a strategic pause with all this spending. Just great news. Now, of course, the the, uh, the backdrop of all of this is the debt ceiling fight. And uh, right now, uh, the government's literally going to shut down, I guess, in the middle of October. There's no more money, and uh, that can include no more interest payments on our debt. It could include Social Security and, uh, and entitlement programs as well. Indeed, so you're referring to two phenomenon. It's actually on September 30th, we face the government shutdown, which is in essence, um, that refers to, to, to whether or not uh, the government is authorized to spend money by Congress. And we've also got in mid-October this debt ceiling looming, and, that, and that's distinct. What that pertains to is how much money Congress allows Treasury to borrow to keep the government going. Mm. Um, I, you're exactly right that these two 
uh, fiscal cliffs, if you will, are lurking in the background. And I would just note here how, uh, you know, from the, 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 the bird's eye view, how remarkable it is that we've got these serious macroeconomic structural issues, crises looming. And, and what is the response in Congress from the majority party? It's they're debating how many trillions of dollars more to spend. Right. I, mean, I find that remarkable. That, that, that seemingly that the, the extent to which the cart is being put before the horse. And here's their argument, basically saying, hey, come on, we helped you when you were in power. Why don't you help us out? You know, what I'd like to see, and quite frankly, I think they should just say, just say no. Show us a plan how this is not going to lead us into total uh, financial fiscal ruin just show us your plan over the next 10 years over the next decade we'll be willing to consider your plan they should come uh, up with a plan and short of that we should not approve it i don't disagree at all the republicans should play hardball here uh, i would note um as i've noted on prior calls that, that the republicans hands certainly aren't clean here when it comes to re responsibility with the debt ceiling however i'll note this it, the, the Democrats passed a $2.1 trillion Democrat-only package earlier this year in March. Um, so it, it is a bit disingenuous for them to lay to, to say that um, the current debt limit is all a function of the Trump credit card. To, to, to be sure, that's a component of it, but let's not ignore the, the $2 trillion that the Dems spent on a party-line vote earlier this year that is very much part and parcel um, of, the, of exceeding the debt limit now. Yeah, but here we are today, and, uh, you know, if your son or daughter comes to you and says, well, Tommy did it, so why can't I do it? <laughs> You're not going to put up with that nonsense. The fact is, we are where we are, and we're going to have to deal with the situation we have. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. I don't disagree with that for a second, and uh, no, you're exactly right. Two wrongs don't make a right, and to the extent that the Republicans, again, use this to play hardball to, to force some fiscal discipline among the Democrats, I'm all for it. Say, so last question. Uh, this has been a self-imposed date, the 27th, uh, on Monday, to come bring this thing to the floor. Can that be pushed back, do you think? So leadership for the first time floated that yesterday. Uh, Pelosi's team did. Before that, they had been resolute in that they were going to proceed with the, the vote on the 27th. Um, it, it, that, that's a, the $64,000 question. And, and again, were leadership to attempt to delay that vote, they do incur the very real uh, the, the very real possibility of losing those moderates altogether, of having them draw a line in the sand and say, look, we're just not going to go along with any of this. So uh, the situation is highly fraught no matter how they proceed. And again, um, I'm, I'm pleased that's the case. <laughs> William, great commentary. I just refer our listeners to the website, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell and Dodd, professor at the University of Houston. Right now, we have with us Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So uh, right now, uh, there was a consideration by the FDA for booster shots, and uh, they did come back with a ruling to give them to some people, but maybe you can give us an update. Yeah, so the FDA recommended booster shots for people over age 65 and for people whose, uh, whose jobs put them at higher risk of a breakthrough infection, so... If you've already been vaccinated uh, and are over age 65 or meet that other criterion where your job puts you at higher risk of a breakthrough infection, then the FDA says it's okay for you to get a booster shot. Yeah, so... And the... And... Go ahead, Bob. No, no, please, Michael. Continue your thought. And so uh, the, the good news about this is that the... The FDA has... Uh, lifted the or 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 um, said that it will not stand in the way of people who want a booster shot, uh, and may, has made you know the drug companies and the and the uh, the pharmacies and the physicians' offices that might be providing booster shots more willing to do so. Uh, but the problem here is that we're 
still the, the FDA is still blocking lots of other people who would want to get a booster shot from doing so. Uh, and rather than leaving this decision to uh, patients and their physicians, just providing the information to patients and letting them decide for themselves whether the added measure of protection they get from a booster shot is worth it. Fortunately, you know, there people have been going back and getting booster shots. It is possible to get, it was possible before the FDA approved uh, boosters to get a booster shot. You would just have to go someplace and say you hadn't been vaccinated yet and then get, a, get another, uh, another shot of Pfizer, for example. But, uh, the, you know, no one likes to, um, uh, no one likes to have to, uh, <laughs> deceive the, uh, uh, healthcare provider or pharmacy in order to get the medical care that you need. The FDA shouldn't be putting us in that position just if we want to exercise our right to make our healthcare decisions. And so the FDA's, uh, approval of boosters is welcome news for that reason, so that we won't have to do that in order to exercise those rights. All right. So, Michael, you've been very supportive, of course, of uh, the whole notion of vaccines and uh, its history. It's uh, the statistics that prove it. Of course, I am a skeptic, and we've uh, it's always been a, a point of contention for us in our discussions. I found, I found some information this morning that uh, Vermont is one of the most highly vaccinated states in the country, and they also have the highest level or one of the highest levels of uh, the virus breakout uh, cases and in the country as well i just make raises the question in my mind is are these vaccines working yes absolutely and that data point you cited confirms that they're working of course the most highly vaccinated state in the country is going to have the most breakthrough infections because those are the only infections that they're going to have uh and uh and it, it was clear from the initial studies, and it remains clear that breakthrough infections are much less dangerous than regular or old infections. You are much less likely to ha- to have any symptoms at all. Your symptoms are much less likely to be severe uh, and cause you to be hospitalized, and uh, and you are much less likely to die as a result of a breakthrough infection than if you get infected with COVID nineteen. Uh, without getting a vaccine, so it is it is safer all around. Uh-huh. Uh, and while we hear about breakthrough infections, that's because we have you know fifty, sixty percent of the U.S. population, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and seventy thousand Americans. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, million Americans who have been vaccinated. And uh, when you vaccinated that many people, yeah, you're going to hear about the breakthrough infections because a tiny fraction of 170 million is uh can be a substantial number but again those breakthrough infections there are fewer of them than there would be uh than there are among the unvaccinated and they are much less dangerous you know uh, our governor desantis here in florida has uh, urged all citizens to get the uh the vaccine, but he's also provided uh, monoclonal antibodies at, at seven days a week from uh, uh, nine in the morning until five in the afternoon, so people can go and get the vaccine without a doctor's uh, doctor's prescription. Get these antibodies without a doctor's prescription, 
uh, and at no cost, which is really terrific. And <clears throat> the level of hospitalization, therefore, has been very low here in Florida. So there are therapeutics that work, and uh, remdesivir comes to mind. Uh, the uh, ivermectin comes to mind, I mean, and I've heard of others as well. So I wonder if the, the tact might be just to, if, in fact, there's hospitalization, just make sure that people have therapeutics to, uh, to deal with the situation so we don't over, overload the hospital systems. So, you know, there are these, uh, these treatments out there that are showing some promise when it comes to treating COVID-19. Mm-hmm. There's uh, one study that found an, uh, a 70% relative reduction in hospitalization or death uh, uh, for, among patients who receive monoclonal antibodies. Another found uh, uh, an 85% relative reduction in hospitalizations and death. But you know what? These numbers are still not as good as the numbers for vaccines. Uh, they're not as good because, well, more people are being hospitalized and dying, even with these, uh, with these therapies. But also, uh, these therapies are not preventing people from spreading the virus once they acquire it themselves. A vaccine will teach your body how to attack the virus sooner. It will reduce your viral load, make you less likely to transmit it to others. Not, uh, uh, it, it won't prevent you from. It won't prevent all people from transmitting it to others, but it will reduce transmission. And these treatments, in addition to not being as effective at preventing hospitalization and death, they don't. They aren't. Uh, uh, they don't have any effect uh, on uh, on reducing transmission. They don't reduce them at all. Hmm. And that's why, even if we develop <clears throat> therapies that work as well as vaccines, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to work as well, they can't work as well on that dimension because uh, therapies, only, you only get the therapy after you, you're suffering acute symptoms. And by that time, you, you could have transmitted the virus to who knows how many people. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that everybody, even those that have been vaccinated, can transmit it to, once they've uh, got the vaccine or got the uh, virus. So it's, it's a real conundrum. Uh, the real underlying problem, quite frankly, is the lack of honesty and forthright uh, being uh, with the public with regard to the CDC and uh, other healthcare agencies, uh, public health uh, outlets, you know, sometimes we just, uh, love, there's a lot of distrust out there. It's unfortunate. And there are, the government doesn't seem to want you to trust it because uh, officials keep making decisions that cause people to question the efficacy of vaccines. All this hoopla over <clears throat> booster shots. <clears throat> Uh, while I, I think it's important to have data and uh, and see if booster shots provide additional protection, when the government makes this much of a fuss over booster shots and, and even suggests we're going to require you to get booster shots, what they're doing is they're making people think that the vaccines don't work. That's right. That the that the first course of vaccination it doesn't provide enough protection. Yeah. All they should be doing is. Uh, gathering the data and doing public education campaigns that say, look, the important thing is vaccination, and we want you to get vaccinated, and if you want to get a booster shot, that's fine, but uh, that'll provide a little additional protection. But what they should be doing is pushing the most cost-effective way of 
saving lives here, and that is uh, that is first dose vaccination or first round of uh, of, of vaccination. And uh, probably and, should probably should not be making mandates. So you should see your doctor to to make a decision. So. Hey, Michael, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary. I think this information and exchange is really helpful to our listeners, and I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Always happy to do it, Bob. Take Thank care. you, Michael. All right, coming up, Brad Palumbo. He is a uh, uh, domestic correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence, serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Professor Larry Bell from the University of Houston. Right now we have with us Brad Palumbo. He's a domestic correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Brad. For our listeners that may not be familiar with the Foundation for Economic Education, maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, it's the oldest free market think tank <laughs> in America. Just head to fee.org to check out our work. 
Yeah, it's, it's great, great organization. I've been to national conferences and to see young people, uh, high school and college age, celebrating freedom and personal responsibility. It's a terrific thing. So, if there's somebody in your life that age, high school or college, introduce them to the organization. So, uh, Brad, you wrote a great piece on Biden's multi-trillion-dollar spending plans and the and the devastating effects it'll have on our economy. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, for sure. So Biden wants to spend trillions of dollars, and everybody's talking about, you know, the debt and, and what it will cost, but actually just the spending itself is a terrible idea. It would have some seriously bad consequences, because when you take trillions of dollars out of the productive sector and you put it into government welfare programs and Green New Deal light schemes, you actually will hurt the economy. So a new study by two economists found that this would lead to $3 trillion less in total economic growth over a decade, 10000 in lost earnings per worker on average, and a 4% lower standard of living for future generations. Yeah, it's... Uh unfortunate indeed and and those are you know and also providing stuff that for example community in in the conversations that you're having with friends do you hear people saying we need more community college <laughs> it's providing stuff that i'm not sure people are desperate to have yeah for sure community college is already actually pretty inexpensive um you can you can graduate community college and pay for it yourself uh, working a minimum wage job yeah. pretty easily. Courses are anywhere between $500 to $1,000. Um, so it's already extremely inexpensive, but subsidizing it would fuel a problem that they have right now is extremely low graduation rates. Uh, and taking financial skin out of the game is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And the other stuff that's in it too, I mean, you've got everything from massive the creation of a civilian climate core which is like this taxpayer funded multi-billion dollar make work scheme for climate change concerned young people to have new government jobs where they go around the country and do environmentalism <laughs> plus you've got hundreds of billions for subsidizing electric vehicles those mostly go into the pockets of wealthy liberals um, and all sorts of other things. None of this is, is really directly relevant to helping people where they need it. A lot of it is very political in nature. Indeed, and also any jobs created by, my understanding is that they will be union jobs, even if, uh, if they're working on a government program or if they're contractors working in a government program. They need to be unionized as well. And, of course, what happens is that once unionized, they pay dues. And where do the dues go? Well, a lot, a lot of those dues go right back to the Democrat Party. Yeah, they do, uh, and the jobs do have to be unionized. Also, though, people shouldn't think of this as something that will create jobs on net. It would create some jobs, like in this Civilian Climate Corps, right? Mm -hmm. Some government jobs. But for every job created, there's at least one job or maybe more in the private sector that will never come to fruition because you're taking the money and the resources away from companies and giving it to the government. And I, for one, uh, suspect that more often than not, the government jobs are going to be less productive and less efficient than the jobs that would have otherwise been created. Right. And for those that are a little bit more skeptical than others, I mean, you wonder about this uh, climate change core. It sounds very similar to the brown shirts from the Nazis. <laughs> 
Yeah, look, I just don't think it's necessary, and I think it is, um, it's actually a pet project of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. and Biden is throwing her a bone with it, something that she really wants. I think it's just a pander to young progressives who care about climate change, who want, you know, massive government socialist schemes, and he goes, here you go, kids, knock yourself out. Because it's easy to just give people things when it's other people's money. Yeah, absolutely. Say, so before I let you go, you also wrote a column about Elizabeth Warren introducing a bill to bring back one of the fiscal federal government's worst pandemic policies. Can this really be true? Tell us about it. Yeah, so Elizabeth Warren is trying to bring back the eviction moratorium after the Supreme Court struck it down for being illegal, she wants to authorize it, fix the legal issues, and bring it back in even a more expanded version of it. And this was the order that said you couldn't evict most non-paying tenants. It was destroying the rental market, destroying mom-and-pop landlords, yeah. and really just messing up the housing crisis even worse. But they have decided that the government should come back into this, and boy, it would be disastrous if they get their way. So is she proposing legislation? Is that the idea? Yes, a new bill. The Keeping Renters Safe Act of 2021. But unfortunately, you know, they, they, they wrap it in this alarmist rhetoric of we need to stop people from being thrown in the streets where they'll get COVID or whatever. And, and it just isn't true. Actually, a report from inside the Biden administration found that in 2020, the financial situation of the average renter got better not worse. Yeah. We've had benefits that paid huge amounts for anybody that needed them. Uh, stimulus checks. We've had, uh, and also anybody who wants one can get a vaccine free of charge. So there is no reason that you need an eviction moratorium anymore. There never was, but there certainly isn't now. Uh, it's just a big government scheme that they honestly want because they believe in socialism yeah and unfortunately uh even though that <clears throat> it's you don't uh, stop paying your rent it's deferred the paper has to be paid sooner or later <laughs> and that's going to end up in either in court or uh, eviction well, sooner or later i will say this bob <clears throat> taxpayers may end up paying that off somebody has to pay it eventually Good but point. i'm not sure necessarily that it is actually the tenants because if they create a big bubble which they did of billions of dollars of back rent it is very easy for progressive politicians to then say, okay, well, taxpayers need to do a little bailout here. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this rent only ever gets paid by taxpayers. Yeah, great point. Brad Palumbo, again, domestic correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. Check out the website, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Brad, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. Coming up, uh, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of so many books. One, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board one of the programs is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books, ten books actually, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I always enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor. Well, uh, you also write your column, On Point, for Newsmax.com. And uh, uh, you've, the latest column is, Beijing targets U.S. reliance on Afghan rare earths, Taiwan chips. Very interesting. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, Bob, this is a subject, a theme that I've been very, very concerned about for a long time. Uh, not just Afghanistan, but uh, general the fact that I think we're racing towards a car wreck with regard to uh, pushing, based on this this climate farce, pushing uh, in electric vehicles, and we can I can talk a lot about the, you know electric vehicles and so on. But the big big issue is they 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 along with a lot of other things, including storage for intermittent sun and you know solar and wind and so on. Uh, huge amounts of rare earth materials for their electronics, for their batteries. And China controls about 80% of those rare earth materials. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we've got, we've got American car companies running to, racing to China to, because they have a big market there for the, you know, these vehicles and, and plus they control the rare earth materials. And so, uh, so this is a, I see this as a huge trap uh, because uh, China can cut off 
not only control their intellectual property, but also control their access to these vital rare earths. And we have them here in the U.S., but because of the environmental regulations, we can't we can't we can't access them. And the only plant we have now in California, the rare earth plant, we have to send the materials to China for processing. So oh, no that's, that's a huge thing. And then on top of this, we we have uh, you know we have this Afghanistan debacle. And uh, China is very much eyeing the Afghan rare earth materials, trillions of dollars of more rare earths available to China through Afghanistan. But the other, the other big, the other big uh, uh, problem is that we're we're experiencing a large paucity uh, uh, of of computer chips, particularly the advanced chips that are coming out of coming out of Taiwan, mm-hmm. and these are very special, sophisticated chips, and there's, there's, a, there's a big, big backlog and, 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 and lack of computer chips for cars. You know, there were 7 million cars that would have been built last year, except they didn't have ch- computer chips for them. Mm. And now as we get into driverless cars and these other things, we need very sophisticated you know, chips, and they're needed for also for aviation. They're needed for... This, this new, very digital-dependent society we have, and a major, major source of that, a primary source, is Taiwan, which, of course, again, China, uh, China is targeting Taiwan. Yeah. So, so it's a, we're, we're putting ourselves in a huge trap with China uh, between, you know, the, you know and it's, it's something that's been in the making for some time, and uh, I think, you know, we... We talk about this globalism and how you know global trade and so on, but we're we're taking a very short-sighted view of that, and it's going to really catch up with us very soon. That's so interesting. I, it reminds me of the saying: "Well, one man's trash is another man's treasure." We leave Afghanistan, and of course, China's jumping in, and they're seeing all the opportunities, including a military base and rare earth materials, apparently for mining for for this very purpose. It's uh, just uh, really sad. And I would imagine these Taiwan chips, they're affecting not only cars, but refrigerators and all kinds of appliances that are in short supply right now. Well, you think of everything we use is electronic. And, and you know, like in, in cars, there was a time when in cars, you know, God bless, God bless my old cars where they had, you know, they had analog you know, dials and things and you actually rolled up your window and, yeah, and you didn't have to have all that. You know, you didn't have to know uh, every you know every little a- aspect of how your car was running because it just either ran or it didn't. And if it didn't, you could probably fix it yourself. But uh, but and those are the, the days in the past. Now we have everything is controlled in the car by electronics, and so the the kind of uh, uh, old you know the common run of the, run of the mill computer chips that. That we, that ran cars and they were being mass produced a few years ago are being substituted now with super sophisticated chips. These are these are you know you know they're only made in a, in a few different areas, mm-hmm. and and COVID shut down some of the plants and there are other other issues as well. But but uh, this supply of computer chips is is backlogging uh, cars and, and and every car company is suffering this. Yeah, and 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 the biggest ones that are gonna they're gonna be uh, suffering are are you know the uh, electric vehicles, particularly you know self driving ones that they're pushing now. But 
but you know they have huge batteries and Teslas and these 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 other cars. Plus, all that stuff's going to wind up in landfills, and yeah. because because we can't really extract the you know the you know, all these different materials from them, we're going to have a huge trash problem. Trash problem. There's nothing environmentally friendly about these things, and and you don't you don't plug them into a tree. I mean, the, the, this, this electricity. Uh, you know, you, you say where does the power come to come from to re, to recharge these things? Well, you know, uh, it comes from a wall plug. Well, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The wall plug's connected to something, and it ain't free. And and uh, so, meanwhile, we you know, Biden kills the uh, Keystone pipeline and drilling in an Anwar and everything else. Gives Putin a pass to you know to build this uh, Gulfstream two pipeline from. From from the Baltic, you know, under the Baltic, from Siberia to Germany, Germany's supposed to be our, our you know, our green uh, uh, model, and and they build all these windmills, and they're having power blackouts, and they're building now. They have to go back to coal again, and and they're buying natural gas from 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 Russia, which bypasses uh, access to to Ukraine for them, and yeah. so they so they you know they've got everything they got between Russia and China. You know, they're playing chess and we're playing tic-tac-toe. It's, it's just insane. No, it really is. Yeah, and, and the, the very premise of the movement, uh, which is to uh, transition to alternative energy, like in having electric cars, is, is flawed. I mean, there's, it just makes absolutely so sense. We've gone from energy independence to now seeing our gas prices rise. There's so many unintended consequences of this agenda and having no positive consequences. Quite, I wonder, quite frankly, if in the future we won't find out that uh, electric cars will go the way of the Edsel. I'm a big fan of, of hybrid cars. I think that yeah, they make all the sense in the world, the Priuses and so on. I think they just they're very, very, very smart technology. They use they use uh, electric motors when when they're most efficient, and you have regenerative braking that pushes uh, energy back into the batteries when you're you know using the energy the momentum of the car, and it uses uh, gasoline when it's when it's appropriate and and so, you know, so there are technologies that make a lot of sense, but foisting all these cars and then putting them all in a grid, where we're where we're going to have, you know, with, you know, we get we get about less than three percent of our energy, sort of the world, from wind and solar. Yeah. And the notion that we're going to push up, you know, we're going to increase the the amounts of wind and solar are nonsensical because nobody wants to live live near a wind farm. Right. The low frequency sound makes people sick. You know the Landowners uh, sue. It's, it's you know they're horrible. They take up huge amounts of land. Solar, in case you've noticed, it doesn't shine at night. I mean, it does. It's just not on our side of the earth. Right. And and so you're going to recharge your car, and the in the you know when when the wind ain't blowing and the sun ain't shining, you got a you got a problem. Yeah. You you go on a trip and well, you're gonna you're gonna wait in a you know on a on a trip when uh, and and wait for uh, one of these. Uh, Charging stations. Uh, car charging stations to, to <laughs> open up when it takes a half hour, 45 minutes with a fast charge on an electric vehicle, when you can pump gas into your car for, you know, in, in 30 seconds. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's just really a disaster waiting to happen. It is. Professor Larry Bell, again, endowed professor at the University of Houston, I strongly encourage you to get a copy of his book, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Also, check out his column, On Point on Newsmax.com. It comes out several times a week. 
And uh, again, his latest, Beijing targets U.S. reliance on Afghan rare earths, Taiwan chips. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And Bob, it's always a pleasure. I always enjoy it so much. Thank you so much, Professor. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. On Monday, we're going to have Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, joining us. Larry Reed is the uh, Professor Emeritus, I should say President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And we'll visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His latest two are Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I always appreciate your comments here on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>